So, hi everyone, my name is Hadar. I am from the Open University of Israel. I am the current WUDC ESL champion, last year's EUDC ESL grand finalist, and I will also be judging in Astana EUDC this summer. A few words about the talk before we begin. The topic, I assume you can already see, as this is a workshop about message arguments. A few caveats that I feel are important to mention before we begin. The first one is there are many different approaches as to how to analyze or win debates about messages. I am going to talk to you about the sort of methods that I personally found throughout my debating career to be very effective and also discuss many of the common mistakes that I have noticed other speakers doing while either judging them or speaking against them, etc. This by no means it means to, to imply that I know the absolute truth about how to analyze those stuff and there could be other approaches that work as well. The second important thing is I am going to discuss in this workshop a lot of general like guidelines for how to analyze debates about narratives. I still want you to keep in mind that while these guidelines are very useful, it is still important to adapt every argument and the analysis of the argument to the specific debate at hand and to avoid just repeating the general rules without adapting them. With this in mind, also it is important to note every rule has an exception. If we will have the time, I will discuss some of these exceptions. And last part, which might go without saying, but is still important, I intentionally tried to integrate many examples to this workshop. In these examples, I will often discuss motions and often I will only present one side of the motion. This is mainly for shortage of time and is usually for the reason that I debated this motion from this particular position. This doesn't necessarily indicate my own personal opinion on the motion. Then what are we going to discuss in this workshop? So a quick roadmap for, for, for this workshop. Firstly, we are going to discuss the burdens of proof that I believe are repetitive for arguments about messages and how to fulfill these burdens of proof. Then we will discuss when and when not to use message arguments or the more strategical questions regarding arguments about messages. Then we will continue to how to engage in debates with competing message arguments. And lastly, we will discuss how to weigh message arguments in debates that are not exclusively about messages. That is overcoming the fluff barrier and actually weighing a message argument to be more impactful than the other more approachable, tangible impact that uh, happen in other arguments in the debate. Afterwards, we will also have a practical demonstration for some of the skills we learn. So first, burdens of proof. A few quick words on burdens of proof in general, as I know some people are not familiar with this term. By burdens of proof for an argument, I mean the, base, the, the most necessary logical steps that must be proven in order for the argument to stand. Not go in this talk into depth about how to identify burdens of proof in arguments in general. This could be a topic for a whole talk in itself. What I am aiming to do is to 
show you what I found to be the most common burdens of proof for message arguments and how to prove them effectively. So basically I identify four main burdens of proof for message, uh, for message arguments. The first one is just describing the message. While this sounds very trivial, a common mistake that I have noticed in many arguments about messages is using very generic terms and linguistics such as, and you might find these words familiar, backlash, legitimacy, antagonism, glorification. All of these words, while they sound very big and might be very impactful in our mind, the problem with them is we do not actually describe what the message is by saying them, but rather we leave it for the judges to infer what it means, to fill in their own minds what is their association for antagonism or glorification, etc. And often we will be surprised to find out that this intuition is different from our own. For which reason, it is very worthwhile to describe the message in detail and is as specific and concrete as possible. The second burden of proof for message arguments is what is the likely interpretation of the message. And this goes to another common mistake that repeats itself a lot in debates about messages. And that is, people tend to assume that the message will be interpreted the way that they want it to be or the way that is convenient for their side in the debate. While the truth is, there are usually many different ways to interpret the same message. For instance, in a debate about affirmative action, the team that is for affirmative action might want to argue, seeing more women and minorities in positions of power will lead to better perception of them as successful as capable and capable because they have reached them. Whereas the opposing team will probably want to say, no, people will believe that they only achieved their position thanks to the affirmative action because they are weaker and inferior and in need of help. Both interpretations are plausible. The team to win this debate in most likelihood will be the one that would actually prove which of these interpretations is more likely. One last note that I will say about this burden is it also in its, inside it integrates the question of whether or not we are actually effectively able to get the message across. This is also to refer to a question that I have seen in the form uh, of questions for this workshop. Some of you have asked, how do we prove a message to actually be persuasive? So when we are going to discuss the second burden and how to prove it, keep in mind that the analysis for what is the likely interpretation of the message could also apply to whether or not the message is accepted in the first place, because one of the likely interpretations of the message could be that the message is bullshit, which is a fine thing that you could prove in terms of what is the likely interpretation. Thirdly, what is the delta? And delta is one of these words that I, that I say beforehand said is rather generic, so I will actually go into explaining what I mean in this. The importance of message arguments is to prove that there is a significant change in people's perception due to the message that you are bringing across. A common mistake that many people do is to prove 
a perception that already exists and ignoring the fact that people already have opinions that are influenced by external factors that are not the message that is discussed in this particular debate. This is, for an instance, true for nearly every backlash argument that I have run into. Most backlash arguments run around the following lines. Bigoted people will see a liberal policy, will get upset and will become bigoted. Wait, they started from being bigoted. What is the impact of that? This is part of the problem. And this is why we want to have a clear burden in our analysis in which we force ourselves to analyze actively what changes in the world, why we change perceptions and not only remain in the same perception that existed regardless of the motion. And the last but not least burden is what is the impact or what action are people likely to take because of the message that they have just accepted? This is crucial because I think possibly the most common mistake about message arguments is using the message as the bottom line. That is th saying things such as conservatives will be upset, people will become sexist, people will become supportive, people will become many different things. All of these will still discuss about the message itself or what happens inside people's minds. Now, the unfortunate reality is it is very hard to win debates on what happens inside people's minds. Or to be clearer, if we go back to the example about the affirmative action, a team that will manage to prove that affirmative action will lead to many people perceiving women to be inferior because why otherwise would they need this affirmative action, even if they do manage to prove this. It still begs the question, so what? Why is this more important than the women who actually get job opportunities or academy opportunities due to the affirmative action? Why should we care what people think of us in, in general? A better way to actually make it an impactful argument that could win the debate would be to say, and because they perceive women to be inferior, they are also less likely to hire them in the next job interview that they see a woman. This is showing what action people are actually likely to take due to the message that they have just received. But this is a crucial link that we must actively think of when we analyze message arguments. So, so now that we have gone through the general overview, let's dive a bit more deeply into the burdens themselves. Firstly, on describing the narrative. So the first one is uh, the, the first advice on this burden, as I already said, is to be as detailed and concrete as possible. So to give one classic example, which I'm going to also overuse a lot in this workshop because it is quite intuitive. In the motion, this house as the LGBT plus community would cancel the pride parade. Probably a very accessible message argument for proposition would be the pride parade is antagonizing to many people and therefore leads to more homophobia and transphobia, etc. What is the problem, however, with using the word antagonizing, as we discussed before, it doesn't say much. And in fact, it doesn't, it isn't necessarily true. Many people would argue, or opposition will likely argue, but there are many good depictions and very friendly depictions of LGBT individuals within the Pride Parade. Why would it be antagonizing? So an example of how it could be 
detailed in actually describing how the message looks like would be to maybe say, in the Pride Parade, people are very likely to be more hypersexual because of the provocative nature of the march, because they want to attract attention, because they specifically talk about their sexual rights, meaning that they want to bring out their sexual desires to the stage, meaning that it is more likely to color the LGBT community as hypersexual. Or maybe I would argue, in the Pride Parade, there is a lot of incentive for politicians to capitalize on that, meaning that mainly left-wing parties will politicize the march, have a lot of flags there, etc., which will antagonize right-wingers that do not identify with these parties. There are many lines I could go at as to what the message looks like. I want to be, however, very concrete in describing what is it exactly that I think is antagonizing. To add a more strategical layer to how detailed we want to be, I'd say you want to include in your, in your description of the message every part of the message and every detail that is contributing to your bottom line, to what you're aiming to prove, or in this case, antagonism, and exclude what isn't uh, contributing to your bottom line, or worse yet, what is actually harmful for your bottom line. So for instance, uh, in this motion, I, in, as a proposition, I would probably not want to include in the, in the description of the message that I will also see many LGBT individuals that are just like me and are your average Joe who also happens to like dudes, which is fine and great. But the problem if I do that is I am spoon feeding the argument for opposition. On this part, many people ask often, but we want to be preemptive. We want to also engage what opposition will likely say about the uh, likely uh, this, uh, way the, that the narrative is going to look like. I promise you, I will get a bit deeper into that and, and about how to be preemptive to alternative message arguments that could be made without analyzing the argument for your opponent. I am generally against this strategy of the opposition might say, so here is our reply. I have several reasons to think it is ineffective, but we will deal with that later on in the slide that is more relevant to that. For now on, the advice would say, include what is helpful to your case, exclude what isn't. And to make your uh, analysis of the way the narrative looks like a bit more deep or persuasive, some guiding questions that I find are useful to use. So the first one is just use your senses. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you read? What is exactly the message that you see in your mind? Try to contextualize the entire picture in the mind of the judge. The second one, which I find very useful, is consider who is the deliverer of the message, who created the message, who is the narrator, and what are their incentives. The reason for this is this very much impacts the way that the message actually looks like. And this could help you analyze why the message looks in a way that is beneficial for your side. An example of this could be from round eight in Thailand WUDC this year. This house believes that feminist organizations should advocate the narrative that beauty doesn't matter over the narrative that all bodies are beautiful. In this, it is very worth, it's very worthwhile to use the fact that the actor that is advocating this message is the feminist movement. 
and that it has its particular incentives to serve women's rights, etc., and how it plays into the way that the narrative looks like. So for an instance, from opposition, I might say something like, because this is the feminist movement, obviously this is not going to be so shallow and, and extreme as saying the most or the only important thing is beauty. But they are more likely to say something such as, look at this beautiful and brave transgender woman. Look at this brilliant and beautiful African-American woman. So in depicting different bodies that are often away from the mainstream, I would also include the fact that I am not only talking about looks because I am likely to assume that given that the actor promoting this is a feminist actor, which is very useful to me in the, in the context of the debate. A third question that you can ask yourself is, what is the setting or the platform for the message that is, that is coming across? So to give some intuition bumps, there is a huge difference between seeing a march on the street, being surrounded by the crowd and feeling part of something bigger than yourselves, adrenaline running through your veins, and seeing the exact same march on a news broadcast on your TV at your living room. The way that you perceive the message and the way the message comes across to you is going to be massively different. Similarly, there is a huge difference between a message that is depicted in an economist article and the same bottom line coming across in a 200 words tweet. This is, by the way, an analysis that is useful for many debates about social media, etc. So it is also very useful to consider what is the setting or the platform for the message that you describe. And lastly, Consider specific words or mechanisms in the motion to help you. What do I mean by that? It is fine to just talk about the message in a vacuum. It is better to engage specifically what changes in the message through the debate. A good example of this, I think, is in the motion, this house would destroy statues that commemorate national heroes that have committed very immoral acts. While I can analyze the message of the existence or the inexistence of the statues in themselves, a potential stronger line of analysis would be to consider the fact that these statues do not just vanish from existence, they are being destroyed. I am going to see them torn apart to ashes below my feet and how this is going to be interpreted, what sort of backlashes it is going to create, how much discourse is going to be around it, et cetera, et cetera. So listen to your OG's mechanism, listen to specific words in the motion, they will often help you describe the narrative in a way that is helpful to you. As for the second burden of the likely interpretation of the narrative, and I remind that in this one, we also uh, treat the question of whether or not we even persuade people in the first place in the narrative, I would advise several questions or, guide, or guidelines that I think would help you analyze that into depth. The first three ones are all relevant to the same stakeholder, which is the recipient of the message. The recipient of the message is so important that I know many people who I value their opinion greatly that make the question of who is the recipient a separate burden in itself. For me, it is more convenient to make it integrated in the second version, you do you. Either way, you definitely want to consider who is the recipient 
or the target audience of the message. Why? Because quite likely the single most influential factor in the question of how am I likely to interpret a message is the question who I am. And in this, I think three main things that I noticed are important to consider about the recipient of the message that influence the way that the message is likely to be interpreted. The first one is what are the pre-existing conceptions of the recipient of the message or the buzzword that many of us like to throw around without analyzing confirmation bias. To clarify, it is very useful to realize whether the target audience that I'm trying to persuade with my message is already uh, tending to agree with me or to be against me. If their pre-existing conceptions are aligning with my message, they are very likely to be susceptible to the messages I deliver them because they want to believe it's true, because it is, uh, it is consistent with what they already believe, etc. Whereas if they disagree with it, they are likely to be more critical of it, less susceptible, and so on. The second question is, how critical the recipient is in itself. So there is a huge difference between getting a message across to an audience of college students and getting a message across to an audience of five-year-olds in kindergarten. Both the ease in which I am likely to be able to persuade them and the nuance that I am able to get across is massively determined by how critical is my recipient. And the third question that I would ask about the recipient of the message is, what is the relationship between the recipient of the message and the deliverer of the message? So, is the deliverer of the message a figure of authority for the recipient? Is it a teacher, a parent, a, an officer, what, or, or what not? If it is a figure of authority, I can use it to say, they are already used to accepting many things that this deliverer of the message says without criticism. They are also likely to accept this message as well. If it is a political nominee of the opposing party, then the recipient is very likely to be opposing and not wanting to listen to this message. If it is a friend of mine who shared a, an article on Facebook, I may be more likely to be willing to actually read it and treat it with respect than if it were the case that I would run into it randomly on the internet because I have now seen it shared by a person I appreciate. Either way, my relationship or the relationship between the recipient and the deliverer is also a very crucial factor in analyzing what is the likely interpretation. Then some guidelines that are not specifically about the recipient. One is just the question of, what are the other existing messages? And I say this goes both ways. This could be in our vice or in our virtue. In our vice, other existing messages could very easily harm our actual delta in the debate. So an example of this would be a motion of, this house opposes depictions of, I think the term was female reciprocal violence in the media, or basically, depictions of women who fight back and attack a man who had previously been violent towards them. Often oppositions in this debate argue 
this depicts women as strong and depicting women in, as strong in the media is good. However, if we consider other existing messages, we would realize that this is not very specific, that opposition, that the government might just answer us, okay, so support Wonder Woman, so support strong women who do not brutally attack men. However, it could also be used to help us. So in many cases, there are other messages that are similar to our own and could be used as associations to describe why people are likely to accept this message the way that they have already accepted similar messages. So as an example, in the motion, this house opposes the depiction of soldiers as heroes. A line of argumentation that I often like is consider what other depictions we have in popular culture of heroes and what are the associations that we have for heroes. So we could argue, for an instance, we are used to think of heroes as people who fight villains. We are usually accustomed to think that if anyone attacks a hero, they must be a villain. So this might lead us to be more willing to accept that intuitively, if we depict soldiers as heroes, people are also more likely to be demonizing towards the enemy soldiers, to be thinking they must be the villain. So using other messages in reality could be served both as a rebuttal and something that we should be aware of and keep in mind when we analyze to not be vulnerable to this rebuttal, but it could also be used to help us in analyzing our likely interpretation. Another factor that could help us is the discourse surrounding the message. So to be clear, the message is not only what you delivered originally by the given symbol, lecture, book, whatnot. I think it, it, the message is also shaped by the discussion around it. And I think a good example of this, which was also a question that was asked in the form, would be in many motions about safe spaces or the trade-off between hate speech and freedom of speech. So as an example, in the motion, this house regrets the rise of no platform culture on college campuses. That is the culture of not giving platform or a stage to quote unquote problematic speakers such as Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, etc. It is probably in the incentive of government to argue for just a free exchange of ideas that would lead us to the truth at, at the end. In all likelihood, government would also want to argue that the message in this debate isn't only the lecture itself. It is worthwhile for the government to argue Jordan Peterson isn't talking or giving a lecture in a vacuum. He has an audience who is critical towards him, who is full of college students who tend to be liberal and tend to be not as accepting of his messages so lightly. And for this reason, government will argue, it is likely that we will get a free exchange of ideas and not a one-sided discussion. Whereas an opposition, I might want to argue, but wait, we will not get a lot of these opinions actually expressed during this discourse because people who are directly impacted by these opinions, say minorities, are not likely to be in the audience in the first place. Once they hear there is a talk by Jordan Peterson, they are likely to avoid even showing up. 
if they are in the audience, they are going to feel personally attacked and ashamed to express their opinions. They are, they might even feel triggered by actually expressing their own experience. And therefore we will not hear their own opinions and it will be a one-sided discourse. Note how none of what, I just, uh, of what I just said or analyzed is about what is said in the lecture itself. I had no word on what the lecturer is going to say, but only on how the discourse surrounding the lecture is going to be shaped. And this is also helpful to prove why the message is going to come across the way we want to prove it to come across. And lastly, also consider how frequent the message is. For the reason of, if you have continuous reaffirmations of the same message, it is easier to prove that A, you will be persuasive, but B, that you can make it go get across in a nuanced way. There is a, full dif a whole difference between a march or a ceremony that I see once a year and a class that I take every day in school, which can bring a lot of more nuance into the way that it describes the message to me. To the third then, the delta. So the first thing that I would say about how to prove that the impact of your message is unique and not, not changing anything in the world is you want to actively consider what alternative influences exist already when you analyze your argument. Do not wait for the other side to challenge you or rebut you by arguing nothing changes. Think preemptively what they're going to say and analyze your argument to be unique in advance. So if we take the example of female reciprocal violence that we discussed and we said that maybe I'd realized that the argument of depicting women as strong is not very unique because there are many other pop culture media references that depict women as strong, I would want to be more specific and choose another sort of narrative that could be more specific to this, to this message. So I might argue showing specifically men as the victims of their own crimes, showing men paying a price and specifically depicting the woman who harms them in return as the protagonist that is going to obviously be portrayed in a good positive light means that we will see and interpret men as the one who are at fault for what they did. This is not a woman ruining a man's life for 20 minutes of action or any other horrible quote. This is a woman ruining a man's life while the audience is cheering for her. And this is a unique message that we don't get from Wonder Woman, for instance. This is what I call the easy method. What I did here is I tried to identify what is different between my specific message and other messages that might exist out there. And then I connected what is unique to the message that I want to prove. However, this method isn't completely effective for two reasons. I, th I think it has two major flaws. The first one is it is still quite easy on the other side to find 
yet another message that is even more similar to the message I defend and still mitigate my delta. But the second and more important flaw, I think, is this limits my pool of arguments. This has led me to disqualify the first argument as not unique enough, which is a shame, because I think in many debates, you can actually prove a message, even if it is not unique, to have a significant delta on an already existing narrative. So what I think is the more effective method, even if somewhat harder, is actually reminding ourselves what is it that we were aiming to prove in the burden of delta. We were aiming to prove that there is a unique changing of minds that happens due to a message that wouldn't have happened without for this message. Once we realize this is what we are aiming to prove, the most effective way to do just that is to actually analyze the counterfactual, to actually prove why without for this message, this perception wouldn't come across. These opinions wouldn't be changed. So a classic example I like in this one, bringing us back to the, these houses, the LGBT community would cancel the pride parade. After I've already gone through the analysis of why say the pride parade is antagonizing, I want to now ask myself, what is the counterfactual? In a world without pride, what would lead to people actually changing their minds and becoming more liberal or more accepting of LGBT identities? And I think an effective way to do this would, to, would be to discuss the fact that if people wouldn't be exposed to LGBT individuals in the Pride Parade, they would probably be exposed to them from either a relative who comes out of the closet or a celebrity that comes out of the closet, which are probably the, the two most common ways to encounter an LGBT individual in one's life. In which case, note how everything changes. A, I am now not only seeing them as an LGBT, that this is everything that defines them, the way that I see people on the parade, because everything, anything I know about people in the Pride Parade is the fact that they're LGBT. But at the point at which it is someone who is close to me or a celebrity who I have first known not as LGBT and was surprised by them coming out, I realized that they are just like me. And this is just another trait of personality that they have. Or I often am preconditioned to like them. It is my son or my idol, someone who I, I have positive opinions towards, and I have a confirmation bias to justify to myself why it is okay that they are LGBT. Whereas if I run into these people on the pride parade, which I am preconditioned to think is bad if I am, if I am conservative or homophobic, I am, I am having a confirmation bias to find everything that I oppose in this parade, to dislike these people. And this leads to an actual change in opinions, because what is crucial is under the counterfactual, we would have people having their first encounter in a positive way, whereas today too many people have their first encounter with the, with the queer community in a negative way. So this is all about the Delta. Then last burden that, uh, that we'll discuss is the impact. To the, to, the, to the burden of the impact, I'd say there are three sub-burdens, but not all of them will always be necessary. The, the first one is just the question of what is the motivation? Why do people actually care enough about the message in order to act upon it? It is not enough to prove that people change their minds. 
we want to prove that they are actually going to do something because they change their mind, which means a good way to prove an impact to a message argument would be to analyze the motivation or prove why the message is going to be so important to them that they are going to act upon it. I think an example of this, for instance, could be the motion of this house prefers environmental pessimism to environmental optimism, which is trying to persuade people to support environmentalism either through a pessimistic depictions such as talking about the Armageddon and if we don't recycle now and start regulating then the earth is going to burn or the more optimistic approach of here is the nice and pleasant future that we can have if we do start acting better towards the environment now the, 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 the Lorex version of environmentalism discussion and in this a worthwhile analysis for either side would be to discuss what is more motivating, what is more likely to actually make me take a course of action. Am I more, am I, are people more motivated by fear or by hope? Either way, you usually want to prove a motivation to do something according to the message that you described. The second thing you want to prove is what can the people who are persuaded by your message actually do and what they are likely to do with that. It is not enough to have a motivation if you are powerless. And in this, I will repeat again, concretization, specificity, avoid using generalities. I think a common thing I see is using impact such as, if people are persuaded by this message, they are more likely to be supportive of legislation that is, uh, that, that is good for these minorities. Legislation is not something an individual can do. I want to be as concrete about what actions I think the individual is going to actually commit. Are they going to vote? Are they going to protest? Are they going to just be a better person to their own fellow friends of this community, etc. Either way, what exact action are people going to take uh, due to the message? And lastly, the one that is least commonly necessary, what is the normative value of the impact? Or just why is the impact good or bad? Now, I will say it is least common in, commonly needed because in most debates it will be conceded and the main argument will be about whether or not you achieve your impact and not on whether or not it is good or bad, specifically in message arguments. However, there are exceptions to this and people sometimes don't realize that they need to prove this. So I think a classic example is in every motion I have recently encountered about the DNC, uh, say, this house believes that the DNC should have nominated Bernie Sanders instead of Joe Biden to be their political nominee for presidency. Most teams usually run something around the lines of why the DNC is more or less likely to be elected on either side of the debate, forgetting that this is not a perspective debate, but an analysis motion in which people can actually support the Republican opinion. This is a thing that exists. This is not common in debate. But you can definitely argue it is not a good thing that the DNC would be elected. So in many debates, it would actually be a burden to prove this thing and not assert it. And then to wrap up the discussion about burdens of proof, and then I will also have a short period of time to give you a, a time to, uh, to ask questions. Which burden is most important in this list? And this is also connected to a another question that was on the form, and that is, when can I stop? Like, 
at which point do I know that I've analyzed enough that I don't need to go more on the description? And the answer to this is when you reach a consensus. The answer to when you should or shouldn't analyze is always dependent on the question, what is contested in the debate? If I have reached a point that probably no one will argue, I do not need to analyze further. If I am still in a very debatable position and what I say is very contestable, I probably want to continue analyzing. And this also helps us understand which of the burdens of proof is more important, which is very important by the way, because fair burden is quite a lot and you usually won't have a lot of time unless you dedicate your entire speech to that to actually go into depth into every one of them. Luckily, you don't need to. In most debates, at least one or two of these burdens will be conceded. Which one? This is the million dollars question. So the key here is to adapt and improvise and see what happens in the debate. However, three general rules of thumb that help in identifying the important burden. The first one is in most debates that are explicitly and exclusively about messages, that is the, the common debates that you know about art, the media, uh, literature, and, uh, and everything such, such as that, usually the most contested burden and the one that will be most important to prioritize will be what is the likely interpretation. Why is that the case? Because usually in debates that are explicitly about messages, both sides in the debate have a strong incentive to agree that there is an impact. Like it is not worthwhile to argue, eh, no one watches TV, no one goes to the museum any longer, because usually it would mitigate both sides of the debate quite symmetrically. And for this reason, it, you would need less, not, not at all, but less of analysis on what is the impact and probably more of analysis on what is the likely interpretation because either side would try to argue that the message is good or bad. Secondly, and in contrast to that, in debates that are not explicitly and exclusively about messages, in debates that are about a general policy that have a lot of direct impacts and also some message arguments within the debate, the most contested burden will almost always be the impact. The reason for this is that this is the most accessible and easy rebuttal for the opposing team that doesn't argue a message argument. It's very easy to cater to judges' intuition and say, this is fluff. I actually showed something changes in the world. And in these debates, you usually want to prioritize the impact. And last rule of thumb, while the extent to which it is true varies, the delta will almost always be contested. I, I don't think I've run into any debates with a message argument in which people didn't try to rebut the delta of the argument. And this is especially true, by the way, for a subgenre which is rising in its popularity of message arguments, which is backlash arguments. Nearly always the burden that is most challenged in these arguments and that is most neglected by speakers is the delta. Why do people actually change their minds? Why do they become more bigoted than they have already been? With this in mind, and before we move on, I would give a time for questions if anyone has any of them. Uh, 
Okay, I would I will take it as a no. There will be another time, however, also in the end of the next part of the lecture to give questions if you will still have some. So now to the question of when to use message arguments. There are some obvious cases and some less obvious cases. The obvious cases that I'm not going to do discussing to depth are the one in which the motion literally screams the, the word message at your face. Like debates about art, debates about media representations, symbols, ceremonies, propaganda. If a motion includes any of these words, in all likelihood you're going to argue a message argument within this motion. There are some less obvious cases in which you definitely need to argue a message argument. And I want to be clear here, I really believe that one of the most crucial mistakes that people do with message arguments is not realizing that what they are arguing is in fact a message argument. And in the debates that are not explicitly about messages, people tend to throw these arguments around without realizing that they need to analyze all of these burdens. So common example of this are every argument about backlash, every argument about legitimacy, like if we uh, if we legalize prostitution, then we send them and then we send people the message that it is legitimate to consume sex work. This is definitely a message argument, despite the fact that the motion isn't exclusively about messages and has many tangible impacts. Every argument about representation, especially of women and minorities. So every debate about affirmative action, for instance, we usually have a clash about a message that is sent. This is important not because you necessarily have to argue the message arguments in these sorts of debates, but if you do argue them, you want to notice that this is in fact what you do. And a common mistake that I've noticed is very often speakers make a message argument and forget to analyze the message. I think a good example of this is nearly every motion about education, which is bringing me to my next example. So, for instance, in the motion from Athens EUDC, um, this house believes that schools should teach uh, children to question authority. Many teams have run very like uh, big impacts of what, uh, what kids will learn from this. And uh, will questioning authority mean that you're going to do drugs and not listen to your parents and, uh, and uh, not listen to the law, to your teacher and, and fail school? Or does it mean that you're going to be a critical citizen that is not accepting anything for granted, etc.? This is classically a message debate. I think like 90% of this debate is about analyzing the messages. But because it didn't scream in people's face, this is about messages, many teams that I have seen actually neglected the analysis of the message that is coming across. So a last group of debates that are about messages and you often miss them is the debates that are not always about messages, but very often. So the first three examples, that is elections and politics, gender and social justice and education are all examples of what I'd like to call propaganda without using the word propaganda. The way to identify whether this debate is about a message or not, because not all of these debates will always be about messages, would be to ask yourselves, is this debate about changing minds or propaganda de facto? So 
if it is a motion about elections that is about the general mechanism of elections, such as negative voting or a general knowledge test for elections or, and, 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 and so on, these are usually not very heavy on analyzing the message. Whereas if they are about election periods and propaganda and changing people's minds, such as electability and where does a party, where is a party more likely to be elected, it is definitely heavy on the analysis of messages. Same goes for gender and social justice. If it is specifically about the promotion of ideas, then it is probably about messages. And same goes for education. If it is something mechanistic about the system of education, such as voucher system, it is probably not about the message. Whereas if it is about in-class dynamics, some sort of new lesson or class that we want to integrate into schools, this is probably about messages. And last example, integration. Integration is a classic case in which I think almost always the debates will have a clash about a message and clashes that are not contingent on the message. And the clash that is about the message is how are the integrated population going to be perceived? So for an instance, in the motion, this house would, const uh, would construct public housing in wealthy neighborhoods. Often government teams argue this will make the wealthy residents of the neighborhoods see the struggles of the poor and be more empathetic towards them. And often opposition would argue, no, this would only reinforce their uh, stereotypes about the poor and they will just hate them because they are lowering the real estate value of the, of the uh, neighborhood, etc. Either way, what you're doing here is a message argument and you need to be aware that this is where you should put in back the shame of the, the, uh, the, the, the burdens of proof that are relevant for message arguments. Last thing about this, in most other cases, avoid message arguments in, if you can. And the reason for this and why I think it is usually not worthwhile to argue them is twofold. Firstly, because their impact is less direct. It is first someone changing their mind and then acting upon it. A less direct impact means a less likely impact. Debate is a game of probabilities, not possibilities. At the end of the day, if the other side proves a definite harm that is going to happen due to their argument, and I'm proving that maybe some of the people who are persuaded by my, my argument are going to do something, my argument is less likely and less impactful than the other side. The second reason is, as may have been evident throughout this talk, message arguments require a lot of analysis and have a lot of burdens, which mean two issues. The first is it is very time consuming and time is pro probably the most expensive resources, resource that you have in debating. But secondly, it makes them more vulnerable to attacks because the more burdens an argument has, the easier it is for the opposing side to identify a missing link and drop the entire argument based on that. Next, on competing message arguments and how to prove your message to be more likely. So the obvious part is, as, as always, like prove your analysis to, to, to be more likely and make better analysis than the other side. However, to, to be a bit more strategical about this, a few general words of advice. First, use the presence of proof that we have learned also as a tool for rebuttals identify the missing links on the opponent's arguments 
and A, point them out, show that these are assertions that are crucial to prove the impact, and secondly, try to refute them. Just as the, in the example of there is no delta to this, uh, actual, to, the, to this message because here is a list of alternative messages that exist anyhow and reach, and, and reach the same benefits without all of the harms. So you, the rupture rebuttals at convergence. However, a crucial note here, be very wary of mitigatory rebuttals that are very tempting in message arguments, such as this changes nothing, no one goes to museums, no one believes what they see on TV that are symmetrical and harm your case to the same extent. Secondly, be actively comparative preemptively in the way you analyze your arguments. And in this, I promised you that I will get back to what I said before about you not wanting to analyze the other side's analysis for them. What you can do is use meta-debating and weighings to show why your analysis is likelier than whatever sort of analysis that they will bring. So for an instance, in the example that we used about the pride parade, if I want to prove that the positive, that the negative depictions that I described from proposition are more likely than the positive depictions that opposition are likely to argue, I am not going to explain what are the positive depictions, A, because it helps opposition, but B, because I might waste my time and attack an analysis that isn't going to come up and they might use a different analysis for other positive depictions, what I can do is the following. Even if there are positive depictions of the queer community in the parade, they are going to go unnoticed because the media is going to focus on what is going to create the most engagement and the most anger among people because this brings them rating. The media is going to focus only on what is most provocative, most extreme, and least friendly and uh, 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 to, uh, to the individual. Or people who are watching from a side are going to only notice the more extreme depictions. So even if there are positive depictions, they are likely to be lost in the crowd. Our eye is more likely to be focused on what is different and what we are not used to see on the day-to-day, -day, and it is going to be more memorable to us and influence more the way we perceive the queer community than the good depictions. None of what I just said requires me to analyze what are actually the good depictions. These are just wings to explain why my analysis is likelier than any sort of good depiction that opposition might bring up in the debate. And this is how I usually advise in general to approach preemptive analysis, but also specifically in messages. And lastly, if the alternative message argued by the other side isn't mutually exclusive to your own, it is often worthwhile not to rebut it, but to weigh against it. So a common example for this, which is I think an ongoing trend, which is becoming more popular, is a trade-off between a message that is better or more impactful and a message that is more timid and not as good as we would want it, but more persuasive. As a classic example, this house believes that environmentalist organizations should target politicians more than individuals. And quite obviously, one side is going to argue if we target politicians, the impact is bigger because they can actually regulate and, and uh, make factories less polluting, et cetera, compared to just plastic straws and the small impact that it has. 
whereas it is probably easier to persuade individuals to change their ways than to persuade politicians against all of the lobbies and of companies in the free market. Now note, these competing message arguments aren't actually contradicting one another. Both could be true and both are actually likely true in the same time. The message of targeting politicians is both more impactful if it is successful and less persuasive in the same time. These are not mutually exclusive arguments. So what I want to do here is to weigh which of those is more important rather than rebut the other side, which I don't necessarily want to do A because I kind of need to bite the bullet in the debate. So I will mitigate their argument, but I cannot drop it completely. But B, it is not very harmful to my case because my case can still stand. They are not mutually exclusive. I want to weigh. So I will explain why, for an instance, we should prioritize the efficacy or the ability to persuade people in the narrative in the first place to the impact because the impact is contingent on the efficacy. If we don't get people persuaded in the first place, we have very nice ideas and values on the paper that will never actually reach any real life impact. Of course, the, the exact opposite weighing could be done quite the same, and this is probably not a very good weighing. And if we would have more time for that, we could discuss it further. But as a general idea, if you have competing message arguments that are not contradicting, possibly you want to just weigh between them. And if we bring the question of weighing to the table, how do we weigh message arguments in debates that are not exclusively about messages and that have very clear direct impacts? So the first answer is you shouldn't. And I, I bring this part back to what, what I said before. You want to avoid reaching this situation. It is genuinely hard to weigh message arguments in debates. However, often we don't have any choice and often this is the only significant extension that we have left for instance. So what do we do in these situations? Several ways that I find to be often true for message arguments and could per perhaps be useful for you. The first one, which is almost always true is a message argument will impact more people than a direct impact in most cases. While the impact is smaller, it will reach more people. So for an instance, in affirmative action, the message about women in general impacts women as a whole, whereas the women benefiting directly from getting a job due to a quota are very few. And while the impact on them is bigger, I can weigh the bigger overall population to be more important. This is almost always true for message arguments as they tend to be very wide reaching compared to policies that usually only impact a specific population that is relevant to them. A second potential weighing would be why the harm caused by a message is harder to opt out of. This is not very intuitive, but I will give a, an example that might help make it more intuitive. So in a debate about paid surrogacy, this house would legalize paid surrogacy. In all likelihood, OG is going to talk a lot about the woman's right to lift herself out of poverty and have autonomy over her body and the many actual big important impacts. And OO is going to analyze why there isn't free choice and the woman is going to be pressured into this job. And these are all very big and important impacts. And I might be stuck then with 
running some message extension, either a message about women being perceived as baby machines or a message about babies being perceived as having a price tag on them and anything of those lines. And what I actually did use in one debate about that exactly, and it actually worked, use the opt-out. The choice to not be influenced by a policy while it is limited is still bigger than the choice to not be impacted by a message. If I am a surrogate woman, for an instance, I may have many pressures on both sides. My choice isn't completely free, but it is on a spectrum. It exists to an extent. I had some opt-in, even the most small of it, to do the job that I am doing. Whereas if I am influenced by a message, by the externalities of this, because this depicts women as a whole or children in, in, a, in a bad light, I did not choose this. I had zero opt-in to the situation. And this is also a very, a way that will very often be accessible for message arguments. It is hard, it is not a silver bullet and you still need to show why this is a more important metric than the tangible impacts in the debate, but it will still be an accessible wing that you can often use. And the last one, which is probably the least common of them, but still happen quite often, is the direct impact will very often be temporary, whereas the message is contemporary. That means a policy often has a very big impact for a very limited time span. And the message that it creates, however, is going to influence generations to come. So a couple of examples in debates about reparations, such as uh, this house believes that the United States should pay reparations to African-American residents. The benefits of the reparations are going to help one generation and for one time only. The impact that it is going to have on public discourse and perhaps backlash that people are going to have because of it is going to stay on for many years afterwards. Or another example, in a competition that uh, I've seen in Israel a week ago, the Gender Open, the final was this house uh, regrets not using TRCs uh, 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 for, sexual uh, for, for people who have been convicted of sexual felonies during the Me Too era. So TRCs for context are um, truth and reconciliation committees. These are committees in which you come and uh, try to prove that you have sincere regret and apology uh, and you offer reparations to your victim. And then if you persuade the committee that this is sincere, you will be uh, granted amnesty from prison sentence. Now, the clear impacts in the debate are very accessible, right? We, we have people literally who are sexual uh, uh, who are sexual criminals who roam the, the streets free, which is probably not a very good thing. And we might have an argument about how this shapes the discussion and discourse in general about sexual violence, either from proposition, we want to argue that this will be a good impact because uh, seeing the, uh, the criminals actually admitting to their guilt, taking away the guilt from the victim and really apologizing for what they did. Or on opposition, we will say this creates a message that 
sex crimes are not a big deal because you can walk away freely from them. Either way, if we want to weigh them in the debate, we can very easily say a TRC will be temporary. A TRC will eventually be broken apart. And for a short period of time, anyone who has committed a sexual crime will be let off the hook. But after several years, people will get back to prison. What is going to stay forever is the impact on the discourse that we have created. And before I move on to the practice, just two uh, less parts that I want to, uh, to actually talk about. So first one, while it might be a bit corny, I do feel like it is important. I do want to thank several people who helped me in this presentation because while I do believe that I have several things here that are genuinely new and original, I did not have to reinvent the wheel. I have had many people who have helped me and taught me many of the things that I have believed here. So many thanks to Eitan Haroz, which was a main source to a lot of the things that I've based this presentation, as, this presentation on. Also to my coach and the CA of this competition, Monica Foreman, which helped me understand a lot of this material. And lastly, thanks to Tamar Ben-Meir, which uh, helped me uh, prepare and rehearse on this presentation. And before we move to the practice, are there any questions on the presentation, on any of the parts of the presentation? Okay, in which case, let's practice a bit. So for this part, what we are going to do is I am going to give you a motion and an argument for this motion. And what I ask you to do is try to analyze this argument according to the burdens of proof that we have learned. And to be very clear, this is not a prep practice. This is not trying to think of more arguments and as many of them as possible, but focus on one particular argument and its analysis. The point of this practice is mainly the analysis. So the first argument to practice would be in the motion, this house would ban hate speech. Through the proposition case, hate speech leads to more discrimination and violence against minorities. I will uh, get back to the slide of the burdens of proof so you can use it as your aid. But before that, just to be clear, do uh, people in the audience understand the practice? Are there questions about it? Uh, do we have to construct the argument according to the presented structure? So preferably, yes. While there are, as I said, alternative structures that could be applied, I think it is useful to try to use the specific tools that we have learned today and implement them in the practice to memorize them better. So I will get back to the slide of the burdens of proof so you can actually use it as your, as your aid. Okay, this is the list of the burdens of proof. I'm going to give you two minutes or so to have a general analysis for uh, how you would approach each of these burdens for this argument. It doesn't have to be full. We are also going to overview this together and discuss what else we could have added. But just think through the framework of these burdens of proof. How would you prove this argument? I remind the argument is hate speech leads to more discrimination and 
violence towards minorities. Okay, while, uh, while the live audience is practicing what we just discussed, I see that there is a question from one of the viewers of the live stream of other, other examples I could think of of accurate representation versus, um, what, versus more persuasive, uh, or to use the exact word, versus more accessible uh, argumentation. So I think actually a classic example of this is, in my opinion, the motion from ground eight of silent WUDC of the uh, beauty doesn't matter narrative versus all bodies are beautiful narrative. And the main argument basically that I ran in this debate as opposition was why it is much easier to persuade people and make them believe the narrative that all bodies are beautiful than it is to make them believe the narrative that beauty doesn't matter. People are generally not susceptible to the idea that beauty doesn't matter because they have so much lived experiences that contradict this. They often are attracted to people based on their appearance. They have uh, memories in their lives when they felt beautiful and how beautiful I felt in my wedding dress and all of these sort of associations that I don't want to give up on. And I don't want to believe the message that beauty doesn't matter because it will make me have to give up on many of the moments that were important to me or i might not be accepting of this message because i know how much beauty or the lack thereof impacted my own life how much discrimination i may have faced or bullying i faced because of not fulfilling beauty ideals all of which will make me not be susceptible to the idea that beauty doesn't matter whereas i am more likely to accept the narrative that uh, all bodies are beautiful because a, I want to believe it, everyone wants to feel that they are beautiful. B, it, uh, there is also a lot of incentives for the private market to cooperate with these things, such as seeing more plus-sized models, etc. because the private market does have an incentive to cater to a bigger audience and to everyone of all bodies, but they never have the incentive to accept the fact that beauty doesn't matter because then they can't sell you beauty products. 
And there are many sorts of argumentations that I can argue here. And again, as I said before, the most important burden of proof, I think, in this debate is what is the likely interpretation, because on the impact, probably every team agree. But there are many sorts of context I could use as to why a certain narrative is more persuasive, where I could still argue on the other side that the better narrative would be that beauty doesn't matter whatsoever. And even if we will persuade less people that it is true, it is preferable that people will accept this message and won't make their self-esteem contingent in the first place on how they look like. Because eventually, no matter how susceptible you are to the idea that all bodies are beautiful, everyone feels not pretty at certain occasions. We all have our bad hair days. We all get made fun of on certain occasions because of our appearance. And it is preferable for us to believe that it, does, that it isn't important in the first place, even if less people will be accepting of this message. For an instance, uh, I hope this answered the question. Okay, uh, at this point, I will ask the live audience, we will do this step by step, uh, each burden after the other. Can I get a brave volunteer from the audience to describe the message for me for the argument that we discussed, hate speech, leads to more discrimination and oppression towards minorities. Does anyone feel brave enough to describe the message? Now, I, I will warn, in my profession, I am a teacher. I can volunteer people. Okay, I, I can try. I think I hear some examples. Uh, so how this message looks like uh, looks like it is it is what then uh, the racist sexist people describe the discriminatory discriminated group as uh, animals as they do not deserve to live the as the parasites who consume resources our resources and uh, uh, spoil our environment, whatever, they use the narrative of, uh, they contradict, uh, they separate us, like uh, the group who suffer from this other people. And uh, this creates a message of uh, which, which prescribes the discrimination against these groups, discriminate, discriminated groups. Okay, so I want to point what I think was a good demonstration of what we've learned and what I think could have been improved uh, to learn from this practice. So, so I think what is good and is actually something that many people fail to do in the first time that they try to, uh, to make this analysis. And that is, this was actually specifically describing the message. For, uh, in, in, in this means two things. First, you managed to separate the description of the message from other burdens in the, in the proof. You did not beg the question by already saying uh, what is going to be the likely interpretation or the action people will take within the description of the message. And also, this was quite detailed. I will say, however, I think what could be learned from this is it is a bit extreme, I think, in terms of what is intuitive for judges to believe happens in real life when we discuss hate speech. So I think using some of the examples that are famous, both 
big and impactful examples, but also nuanced examples to have a wide uh, variety that shows that we deal with all of the cases in the debate. So we have in this things such as ge uh, generally saying uh, African-American people are more likely to commit crimes uh, be uh, because of their biology or personality could be a hate, uh, a hate speech in itself. Or saying things such as, uh, homosexuality is a sin and God could, uh, could uh, punish us for this, could be a hate speech in itself. All of these things, uh, all, all of these things could be certain the, uh, phrases that people would use in hate speech. And I think these could be somewhat more intuitive real life examples for people, but also could then be connected to the next burdens that will help us understand how we actually prove our impact at the end. So how can we show what is the likely interpretation of the message? What do we want to prove the likely interpretation of the message to be? If we want to prove that eventually it will lead to discrimination or oppression of any sort. Okay, uh, can I uh, add, can I try? Yeah, sure. Uh, so first of all, I assume that this is uh, society accused us uh, that hate speech because it is awful and there is a narrative which uh, currently accuse this kind of speech but uh, there is a people who didn't have this who, who has uh, bias like confirmation bias who trust the people who spread these messages or who already have a pre-existing uh, prejudges against, uh, for example, African-Americans or homosexual people. They, these, pe these people are likely to believe in this message, but not only believe, but to ignite this, uh, their angry uh, in them because of the spreading information uh, in the much larger extent. And moreover, it is sometimes uh, can be, uh, how to say the less radical speakers like for example Ben Shapiro etc they also tend to speak uh, this tend to discuss these uh, messages but in less radical manners and we didn't uh, consider it at, as a hate speech yet but they will be spreading more because of the discourse creating by the hate speech itself Okay, uh, so basically I got two main mechanisms, if I understood correctly your answer, which I think are good mechanisms to use in this debate. A, there is a confirmation bias effect. People are biased against minorities in the first place. They are looking for evidence to tell them that they are not the racist ones, it is just the truth out there, and they are more likely to be accepting of this message, therefore. A second mechanism is an overtone window effect, that is, once we allow for hate speech, we shift the discussion to be a bit more, to be a lot more aggressive in general. And then also other opinions uh, are going to become now the mainstream of the standards, such as the maybe not hate speech opinions, but say, but say the, uh, the opinions that, are, could, that could be expressed by Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, et cetera, that could become more popular. Did I understand correctly your response? Yes. Okay, so I think these are good mechanisms. Does anyone want to add any suggested mechanisms that you would use to analyze the like interpretation here? 
okay, if, if not, I, I will add some of my own because I think they could, they could be valuable here. Um, so I think some useful lines of analysis that could be used for this argument would be A, to consider who is the main person that is impacted by the motion or the main recipients or specifically, when do we actually have the ability to sanction someone for hate speech? We probably are not going to sanction your grandma for making a racist slur during your uh, dinner when no one actually uh, was going to report her for this. We are more likely to, for an instance, do it when a prominent speaker, a religious figure, a leader, a celebrity does this and has a lot of reach and we can actually see it and enforce that. In which case we can also add the mechanism of there is a certain authority between me and them. I am accepting their word as a sort of truth because of my appreciation towards them and therefore I'm more likely to accept the message that these, are, these stereotypes are in fact true. Or another likely interpretation that could often be used is this is just justified to be racist, which is a terrible message to get people persuaded in. So I, I think what is often useful to say is people don't want to perceive themselves as racist. It is still a taboo in our society. However, if they do get the general message that black people commit more crimes or that gay sex leads to earthquakes and whatever other sort of things people actually argued in real life, while they don't want to perceive themselves as racist, they are much more likely to be, uh, to forgive themselves for saying, for this, we are justified in certain policies. We are justified in perhaps police brutality because maybe it is a proportionate reaction or we are justified in shunning away LGBT individuals from our society because they lead to more disasters that happen to us if we are to accept the hate speech of our priests about them. And I think many uh, lines in, in these realms, like thinking a bit, who are the sort of people who say these messages or what sorts of exact uh, words and, and arguments they tend to use in terms of their hate speech could be helpful to analyze why the likely interpretation will also lead eventually to a to certain action against these minorities. Does anyone want to add anything on the on this argument before we move to the next one? Because we have already kind of discussed partly the delta and the action, and I kind of want to also have time to engage with other arguments in the practice. Okay, in which case I will bring us back to the practice. Okay, so the second argument that I want you to try and prove is in the motion, as adoptive parents, this house would only tell their children they are adopted after their teenage years. Prove the following opposition case. The child will feel more loved and belonging to the family if we tell them when they are young. Other questions about the argument or what we are aiming to prove here? Okay, in which case um, I will... I have a yeah. question. What Go is ahead. the alternative? So in, in this case, we tell the 
children that they are adopted in teenage age and the um, what is the com comparison situation comparison situation so proposition wants to only tell the kids after their teenage years and opposition wants to tell it to their kids already when they are young okay and we as opposition in this case want to prove the argument that the child will feel more loved and belonging to the family if we tell them that they are adopted when they are young so back to the burdens of proof so you could use them try to think how you would analyze this argument to be true take a couple of minutes Okay, is anyone already feeling prepared to at least describe the message, do the first burden of proof for this analysis? Mm, I can try again. Maybe we want to also get some more refreshing opinions and views. Egerim, do you want to give it a try yourself? Mm, I prefer if someone else try also. Yeah, uh, so Egerim, do, do you want to give it a try? Um, maybe I think the... Oh, sorry, sorry. So I think maybe the message would be that like, we trust you enough to like know things and we trust that you will accept this message. So. Like I think it builds more trust with him with 
within the family. So I think this is a good identification of what we want to prove to be the likely interpretation of the message. But this is still kind of skipping the first question of what is actually the message that is sent? What are we in fact going to say? And I think what is very nice about this debate is we have Macfiat in this debate. It is, un it is unlike many other message debates in which we need to analyze the likely depiction of the message. We are the parents. We get to choose how to get this message across. We can use very uh, nice terminology that will cater to what the child wants to hear. Like, we chose you out of all the children in the orphanage because you are special. Or we can explain why what is important and part of being a family is nothing to do with biology that children don't understand anyway, but all the experiences that we've shared and the quality time that we have had together, this is what makes you my child and nothing else is more important than that. I think what is important to note about this motion and why I chose it as an example is in debates that we have some prop fiat when we define the mechanism, whether it is policy or perspective, because perspective it is, all, is also policy in small scale, we get to decide how the message looks like. And this is a very powerful tool that we want to weaponize when we get the opportunity. And then, could anyone help me analyze what is the likely interpretation of the message? Hussam, do you want to give it a try? Okay. So you're breaking up a bit? Yes, oh, okay. So if, if no one wants to volunteer their own pro uh, proposals, several mechanisms that you could use to analyze what would be the likely interpretation and why it would be effective and the child will be persuaded that we love him and he's accepted or, or she. Firstly, and, and this is a, a, a a line that I like pulling in every debate that that involves children, it is a child. They are like a sponge. They are very susceptible to most messages, especially when they come from their parents, which are generally an educative figure to them that are used to accept their word and they see as mini gods for, for uh, to an extent. But also, the child is very likely to want to believe this message. They are very susceptible to that because everyone wants to believe that they are loved. So they don't have any reasons to persuade themselves. Otherwise they will want to believe us. And children don't have any, any of the stereotypes that we learn to get when we grow older and then understand uh, many of the uh, stereotypes that people have about adoption and the importance that society puts about on biology as though it is important because kids really do not understand biology that much. So the child is very likely to accept the message. Now, a tricky one. Could anyone help me analyze what is the delta or why on the counterfactual the child wouldn't feel loved and accepted in the family? I have idea, uh, an idea to compare uh, how teenage will analyze that and how to young uh, person will analyze that. So I assume that uh, 
if the there is a teenage person we have the more quarrel with uh, parents in the past so he has a more negative effects uh, negative experience with parent as well as positive and in, in the comparison uh, how the teenage person can possibly react to this um, message he can this more be more become more distanced from their parents because he like has these previous quarrels and he can interpret this um, message as an as an this quarrels he connects with quarrels with the idea the message uh, what the parents tell what he's adopt adopted one in uh, it is kind of way to say we don't love you but while the children uh, they don't react so aggressively because we can buy him for example ice cream to reduce the stress and to show him love so therefore the delta here is that we can uh, make the reaction of the children more positive while the teenage we have a, a risk to become to, 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 to teenage for teenager to be more distanced from the parents. Definitely. Uh, I think uh, a very effective mechanism to discuss here, and I'm going to then let Husan also add what they wanted to add, is to describe just teenagers and how, unlike children, they are literally the opposite of a sponge, and they are very rebellious, and they do not want to listen to what their parents tell them, and they are very easily offended. And when they do get offended, like Igor said, they often just shun away. They don't react to these things very proportionately. This is one potential mechanism that we could use to demonstrate the delta. Uh, Hussan, you, did you want to add anything? Yeah. Do, you, do you want to maybe write it down in the chat so we can read it out loud? I, I, I will have to... I will have to cut you off there because, I, unfortunately, at least to me, you're really not very audible, but I'd be happy to uh, read your suggestion on the chat and then read it out loud for the viewers to also hear it. Okay. So, I do want to emphasize two things that I think are important to notice in the delta in this particular argument that are relevant to things that we have discussed today. The first one is a lot of the delta could be proved directly by having a good analysis on the likely interpretation. Because if we had the analysis on the likely interpretation in the first place as a very unique um, uh, in, a message, then it is very easy to prove why the counter of it won't, won't reach the same impact. So if the mechanisms we used are, here is why children are specifically susceptible because they do not yet have stereotypes, because they are used to accept their parents' authority, all of these things are very easy to negate once we realize we talk about teenagers. They are not accepting of their parents' authority. They already do have a lot of the stereotypes and they also very much care about what people think about them because this is this age. A second thing that I think is important to note and could be useful here in the Delta is what I said before about 
noticing the mechanisms or the words in the motion or what changes the message. We do not compare in a vacuum a child finding out when they are young and a child finding out when they are old. We are actively hiding away from the children the fact that they are adopted for many years under proposition side of the debate. This means that at the point at which they find out about it from their parents when they are teenagers, the discussion begins from an initial point of distrust. I already know that they have lied to me once about a very big deal for that matter. Why should I believe them now when they say that they still love me and I'm still their child? So, so in, in, I think in this example, it is also worthwhile to note what is the specific mechanism that actually changes something, if this changes the message in the debate. And lastly, what action are people likely to take? Or I think Igor already gave one good example. A potential action could be the child shunning away from us, not wanting to talk anymore, our relationship being destroyed. Any other ideas? So the, the reason I ask this question is, I think it is also important to note that an impact, while it is necessary to prove that an, a tangible impact exists from a message argument, it is not necessary to prove a very large scale impact that has to result in legislation or whatnot, especially in perspective debates that tend to be more narrow in their scale in the first place. It is very fine to sometimes have impacts of, of messages that are more about interpersonal relationships, even if they are rather small in, their, uh, in, the, in the amount of influence that they have on the general society, such as just my child being less happy, which is a bad impact in itself, them wanting to talk with us less, maybe trusting us less with future problems that they may have and not discussing when, whenever they experience any other issue. And let me see, yeah. Uh, I will also, uh, read what uh, Hussan suggested as another mechanism. Uh, once a child realizes that they are adopted, they are more likely to question the merits of their parents' choice. That is, the child is likely to think that they, des uh, that they deserve only, uh, uh, th the parents will accept them only if the child studies well, does di uh, uh, daily chores, etc. Uh, this is, by the way, a, a very good impact, I think. I didn't think of it myself, but this is definitely another impact that you can derive from this argument. That is, when a child ex uh, accepts the message that they are part of the family under our side, whereas under counterfactual, they are more likely to feel like they are not part of the family, they are more likely to feel as though they are continuously tested, that they need to prove their position and part of the family because it is not trivial by blood relation that they should be. So this is also a potential impact that could be argued. To the less practice that we will have today, so what we will do in this part is rather than analyzing an argument, we're going to now only try to identify the message argument that exists in the following motions. The, the, the rationale behind this practice is 
these are two motions that are not blatantly about messages, but I think have very important to notice and potentially strong message arguments. And I think it is worthwhile to try and identify them. So to be very clear, what we are going to do in this practice is we are not going to analyze. We are also not going to make a prep practice in which we try to think of all the arguments in the debate, because there are also many arguments in this debate that are not about message arguments. What I want you to do is for every motion that I'm going to present to you, try to think of all the specifically message arguments that you would run in this motion. So starting with, this house would let children choose to take an esports class as an alternative to sports class at school. My question to you is, what message arguments would you attempt to prove from proposition, from government in this debate? Take a minute or so to think if you need it, and then we'll discuss. Okay, so does anyone have any ideas for a message argument they would run from proposition for this motion and they would want to share with us? You can either say them out loud or type them in the chat and then I would read them out loud. Maybe uh, the one that the school actually begins to take into consideration the preferences of the ch children. Okay, so what, what would be the message that you would try to prove? Uh, we, as a school, adopt your individual preferences and uh, your possibility to, or not, um, if you are possible to participate in sport competition or, uh, I don't know, I, I thought about this in the two manners. First of all, mm -hmm. about those who just like uh, computer games and play these games, etc. And uh, in this case, we take into consideration and consider uh, that their uh, choice is legitimate in our eyes in comparison to the previous situation where it's like we we do not adopt the computer games as a good way of spending time. And the second one is just uh, like considering the computer games as a sport itself. Okay, so I think these are partially examples for arguments in the debate that could also be argued irrelevant of, of, of messages as well. So 
things uh, about general the, the right of students for choice or to be just happier in their lessons, etc. Um, I, I do want to also, okay. um, unless I misunderstood. Uh, the uh, two points. Uh, can I raise it? Yeah. So I just wanted to also uh, read out what you just wrote in the chat. Um, oh, great. Uh, I actually really like these examples. So the, the, these two points are the fact that A, children can uh, access and contribute in esports activities uh, uh, regardless of physical limits. Specifically, uh, uh, students who are disabled, for instance, could be more uh, partaking in these esports lessons. And I think what is interesting oh. here is this is not yet a message argument, but this is definitely an a line of argumentation that if we turn into a message argument could be proven to have a, a, an impactful significance in this debate. So there is a huge clash in this debate, I think, about the self-esteem of students and where it is better. And I think there are very accessible prop arguments about how the esports in school are going to improve students' self-esteem. Why? Uh, the, uh, in describing the message and how it looks like, the general ease in which everyone can advance and feel like they are contributing. There is a, a computer game that actually tracks your advance and tells you whenever you level up. Uh, everyone can, uh, uh, can really feel like they are advancing and particularly it is often made this way so it becomes harder and more challenging the more you advance. So it is also specifically made fit for your own individual abilities. This is in comparison to sport lessons in which many people who are disabled or suffer from obesity or from any, even, uh, who, even people who feel bad about their body regardless of their health and don't want to expose it in sports lessons. This could be a, a message argument leading to why students will feel better self-confidence and have then more belief in their abilities when they, after this lesson, move on to the next lesson and go to a math test with a lifted up spirit compared to the sports lesson, for an instance. And I think uh, we will now uh, ab abruptly uh, go to the second example as well. And with this, we will say, finish the workshop as a whole. So for the motion, in countries with conscription for men exclusively, this house believes that the feminist movement should advocate for the conscription of women. What message arguments would you run from opposition side in the debate? Does anyone have an idea off the top of their head? So I, I would leave this also as a practice to, to think about in general, as we are running out of time. Uh, I will give an example of a message argument that could be claimed here. However, there are other examples which I challenge you to think of for yourself. 
An example of a message argument that could be made on opposition in this debate is why it would portray women in, a, in an actually bad manner and is counter, uh, counterproductive to the goal of advancing women in society. So in this, I would first analyze how the message will likely look like. And with this, I would analyze insofar as we, agree, as we even succeed in getting women conscripted, it is definitely going to be very bad because in all likelihood, they are going to not be in key roles in combat units, in intelligence, etc., but are also going to suffer from a lot of sexism and discrimination from within the military. Therefore, they will reach to the lesser uh, degrees in the military. Whereas on the counterfactual, the specific women who chose voluntarily to join the military are usually the ones who are most impressive, who are very motivated, who are likely to be in key roles where they can actually serve a very good example for women. So this is one potential message argument for this debate. I would leave the rest for you to think. And if you, and, and if you want, we can discuss it further in a, a in, uh, in follow-up after this uh, discussion. I will also let uh, people who are part of the live audience a, a contact way in order, for, in order to talk to me if they want to discuss the potential arguments that could have been run or if they have any questions in general. And that is basically it for the uh, workshop today. I have a short question about the sure. so we discussed the motion about the children so there were two comparative words uh worlds so in the interpretation point the second actually the first we deliver a message and the second we describe the interpretation uh we describe only the, the interpretation from the position of the young child should we also describe the position in this point from the teenager perspective or how it, how are organized in a better way? Definitely. And, and in fact, I think we actually did. So we discussed the perspective of the child when we discussed the burden of what is the likely interpretation. We discussed, however, the perspective of the teenager when we reached the point of analyzing the delta or why on the counterfactual we wouldn't make the child feel loved and part of the family. If the question is, should we include the perspective of the teenager already in the burden of what is the likely interpretation, I would advise to refrain from that, as usually this leads to mixing and creating overlap between burdens of proof, which usually results in begging the question and already jumping ahead to the conclusion before we finished analyzing the first and, prior, and logically prior burdens of proof. So to prove the direct line of how the child is going to interpret the message that we send to them, we only need to engage the perspective of the child. To have the comparative part of it and the delta of this argument, we at this point want to also discuss the perspective of the teenager. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Are there any other questions? All right, in which case I think we can call it today. Thank you for the whole training.
leave highly respect that. No, are you? I, I wasn't actually. I, I wasn't here um, in the beginning of the whole um, training workshop. I hope I will look on that. Uh, just pre, I mean, just before we whole completely finish this. Uh, just one, uh, just point. Uh, okay, on the on on the point of like self-esteem, right? Um, so in this case, uh, I mean, prop can say okay, like um, esports can increase the likelihood of self-esteem, but the same can I mean same message is applicable to the prop in this case. I mean, to the object in this case, because you are more likely to engage in I don't know like in physical activity where you can actually I mean how likely you can increase your impact so that you weigh your message if, if that's mm -hmm. relevant so I think this is again a case of competing message arguments in a way and I would just in, in this case try to actively weigh why comparatively speaking the esports are more likely to improve student self-esteem compared to sports. And I think the easiest way to do this in this particular debate, by the way, would be to weaponize the word choice. The debate only applies to students who choose to substitute sport lessons for esports, meaning that in all likelihood, those are the children who didn't feel very good about their sport lessons and sport lessons didn't do great to their self-esteem. So in all likelihood for the relevant population in this debate, our message is more important or more relevant as an idea for a wing that could be made here. Thank you. Wonderful. It was great. No worries. Uh, so, and uh, I have one more question about the proving the impact. So it was the fourth point. So how many time usually you spend on these arguments? Because uh, I, when I try to explain that, I uh, tend to spend too much time on explaining uh, how politician would react for some claim of the people after this message, etc. So, how to prove it fast and quick? How what? Uh, how to prove it effectively? So, oh, how to prove it fast? Um, so, basically, what are the shortcuts in proving message arguments? Um, I would say the following. First, again, as a general point of uh, to. to as a general thing to realize and accept as reality, message arguments do tend to have and require more analysis than most other arguments. However, the ways to maybe go through them faster is to A, realize what is considered and what is contested in the debate, and B, if something wasn't yet considered, try to get a concession from other teams in the debate. So often, if you want to keep needing to analyze a specific burden, realize what is the easiest for you to actually get the other team to agree on. So for instance, in most, uh, in most motions that are explicitly about, the, about messages that are motions about symbols, art, etc., it is usually easy to get a concession out of the opposing team that the, that the motion is impactful. Even if they don't say it in their own volition, you can usually prove why implicitly in their own arguments, they have to agree and accept the fact that the motion is impactful. And for this reason, you don't need to analyze the impact. You barely need to analyze the delta. You only need to analyze a 
and focus on one specific version, which is the likely interpretation. So try to identify which of the burdens is less likely to be contested by the other side. And then you can get a concession on it or prove it to a lesser extent than the other burdens and save a lot of time for this. As a general rule of thumb, usually when I run message arguments, that depends on whether I'm top, uh, top half or bottom half and depending also on the motion, usually, on top half, they would be one of two arguments. It is uh, like it would require like three minutes of analysis to make a basic uh, a basic argument about a message to pass. If I make an extension about a message, especially in a motion that is not explicitly about messages, and I want to actually make it sound very plausible, despite the fact that the intuition of the judges is probably against me, I will probably focus on this as the main, if not only, argument of the speech. But, but in most other cases, I think it could be made in three or four minutes. Um, 